Welcome to All Things Criminal. Hey guys, and welcome back to Season 2 of All Things Criminal. We took quite a break there, so there are a few things for us to get caught up on. I have now moved to Toronto and started my master's in criminology. That being said, new city, new degree, and naturally a new season of this podcast. So this season, I do want to integrate a few new things, and I really want to hear your guys' thoughts on it. First of all, we have a new logo. But with me starting my program, I was actually thinking of incorporating my coursework into the podcast so that you guys can sort of follow me on that journey. And I want to incorporate some more positive-based episodes in between those heavier but necessary ones where we could have, you know, a better balance between theory, storytelling, stories of resiliency and success, as well as those dark and heavy stories that come with this territory. So please send me a DM and let me know if that's something that you guys are interested in moving forward and anything that you would like incorporated in this new season. Now that being said, today is not a theory episode, nor is it a light one, so here is your trigger warning. Today's episode discusses themes of PTSD, suicide, violence, and war. Today we are talking to Aiden a 23-year-old currently living in Ottawa, and Aiden will share with us his experience living with a veteran with PTSD, receiving death threats, and then the barriers that he had faced trying to utilize the police and mental health services in response. But as usual, I want to give some background information and definitions on the topics that are being brought up today, just so that we all have some context going into this interview. So first of all, PTSD, for anyone who doesn't know, is defined as a trauma and stress-related disorder that may develop after exposure to an event in which death or severe physical harm occurred or was threatened. Now, you can look up the full DSM-5 criteria and symptoms if you are interested. I have it linked in the show notes. I've also linked all my sources from this intro there today. Now, while the topic of mental health can be applied broadly to veterans, today's episode is really going to hone in on the mental health of veterans who fought in Afghanistan. And, you know, with the current tragedy of what's going on there today, I just wanted to give a really quick refresher on Canada's role historically in that country. So I'm going to read a quick excerpt about the war in Afghanistan from the Canadian Encyclopedia, which you know, obviously is going to be a Canadian perspective, but this was Canada's longest war, lasting from 2001 to 2014. After the 2001 terror attacks in the United States, Canada joined an international coalition to destroy the Al-Qaeda terrorist network and the Taliban regime that sheltered in Afghanistan. Although the Taliban were removed from power and the Al-Qaeda network was disrupted, Canada and its allies failed to destroy either group and failed to secure and stabilize Afghanistan. More than 40,000 Canadian Armed Force members served in this 12-year campaign, and 165 died. And today, many Canadians of this war now suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, and more than 175 Canadian military personnel took their lives between 2010 and 2020. So that's just a little bit about Canada's role in that war. And then to bring us up to speed of the current state 
of these veterans today, I'm going to turn to referencing a few papers from the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry and the University of Toronto's Psychiatry Department. So in the most recent national survey, 23% of veterans report having at least one mental health disorder diagnosed. Veterans over 50 years old are significantly less likely to receive psychiatric care or see a mental health care physician. And one big problem that I read in these papers for that is that a lot of these mental health care workers are not familiar with military life and culture, which is obviously a huge barrier for people wanting to access help. Further, 1 in 10 veterans who fought in Afghanistan now have a PTSD diagnosis. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of info on the use and accessibility of these mental health services, which is really a shame because it's hard to decipher these statistics without that information. Um, just for example, you know, how can we tell if the diagnoses of PTSD are they going up because more people have PTSD or is it because more people are accessing the services to get that diagnosis? So it's really important that we get more literature and studies done on this. But simply put, it's very clear that we need more and better mental health services for these veterans. And if you're sort of spinning on how this all ties into criminality, let me just sort of quickly state a Canadian case with you. And this is the case of Lionel Desmond in the East Coast of Canada. So Lionel Desmond was an Afghanistan veteran, and he was in an inpatient program for PTSD before he was released after three months of treatment. Long story short, he ended up going home and killing his wife, his mother, his daughter, and then himself. And, you know, obviously a fatality inquiry was made with Judge Warren Zimmer. And the judge actually ended up stating that Veterans Affairs failed that soldier by its negligence in providing critical information to Desmond's psychiatrist and releasing the patient without certainty for the safety of himself or others. So I tell that story to show the severity of PTSD and to really stress the critical importance of bettering these services that are meant to prevent these tragedies in the first place. But please bear in mind a couple things. That story is absolutely independent of today's interview and is simply for Canadian historical context to tie these themes together. Second, that the mentally ill are not by default a threat to anybody. And actually, those suffering from mental illness are more likely to be the victim of a violent crime than the perpetrator. But just to wrap up my spiel, all I'm saying is, if the government is going to be sending our people into situations that will traumatize them and induce mental illness, for example, a war, they need to ensure that they have the proper funding, infrastructure, and accessible systems in place to not only diagnose and treat, but to provide, like, provide that continuous support once they're home. You know, we can't afford to have more veterans falling through the cracks, and Canada really has to do better. But on that note, I'd like to turn it over to Aiden so he can share his story with us. So please give a warm welcome to him. My name is Aiden Hardy. I was a student at UOttawa. I worked for the federal government for two years at the Treasury Board Secretariat um, as a project services officer. Do you want to just start by telling what you think is like the beginning of this story, like the background that we need to know to understand the scope of this? Sure. So my father uh, is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. He served uh, multiple tours where he served in the Middle East and in various countries. He served in uh, 
the mission in Libya as well. So I don't know, I guess, where you would say the story starts. You know, you could say that it starts last summer, uh, the day that my dad threatened to murder me. Or you could say that it started on 9-11 when our role in the Middle East was cemented. You could say that it starts with the war in Afghanistan. But I know, uh, I know where it's led to in my life and how there's been a spillover effect of, of what's happened there. Okay, so basically your father has, is he diagnosed with PTSD or is just showing symptoms? He is diagnosed. He's diagnosed. Okay, so no. can you tell us a little bit about the incident with him? So I had gone to stay with him uh, last July. He'd invited me to stay with him because there'd kind of been, uh, I think, some stress in the family with the pandemic and everybody being isolated. So he'd invited me to come stay with him and my grandfather at Garrison Petawawa. He was clearly not doing well with his mental health, I would say. He was very angry and uh, he was pacing around the house a lot. He, was, uh, he wasn't letting anybody cook food because he said it would make the house too hot. But then he had told me how, how like a week earlier he had yelled at uh, my grandfather and yelled at him to hide in his room. So he was kind of behaving kind of scary. But um, he was um, a little bit sensitive about the fact that I was smoking weed, that I, that I was smoking weed. And I had asked him, I had let him know before I came that I was going to be. And I'd asked for his, his permission to do it around his house. And he claims to be a total supporter of, of legalization. So this was no issue. But he started to get annoyed by the smell over a period of days. So I offered to take all of my weed and bake it into a batch of brownies. And then I would just eat it going forward. So he liked that idea. But so later, I think it was the next, it was the next day that I made them while he was at work. And uh, he came home from work and uh, he brought home some beer. I had cracked a beer and then we were sitting down to have dinner. And my grandfather gets up to go to the bathroom. And my dad, my dad says, come with me. And he takes me out to the front lawn. And he says, he says, you're smoking weed and you're drinking alcohol. If I ever see you smoke weed or drink beer again, I will kill you. I will slit your fucking throat. I have killed 17 people and I will do it again. I will kill you. I won't hesitate. And he was poking me in the chest and he grabbed me by the shirt. What was your reaction in that moment? I kind of started saying, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. And and pushing him. And how did it end? Yeah, I think he sort of snapped to it after a minute that mm-hmm. and um he and he sort of he sort of apologized and we went inside and I started asking him some questions. Like I asked him if he thought that that he had given us like a normal childhood. My grandfather, you know, we, we started talking about some some stuff from when I was a kid. And uh, my dad, you know, it, it was brought up that I had that I had struggled with depression when I was an early teenager. And my grandfather said that I was too much of a pussy to commit suicide. OK, so is it fair to say you feared for your life in that household that day? Yeah, well, I spent basically the next two days uh, just staying in my room. Yeah. And then uh, after that, I sort of tried to force my dad to drive me back to Ottawa where I was living at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said no. And we 
parted ways for a number of hours. And then he came home and he offered to drive me home. Yeah, because you're in, what, Petawawa at this time where there's like no buses or anything, right? That's at Garrison Petawawa, yeah. Okay, and then so what was your immediate reaction after this incident? You left Ottawa and did you call the police? Were you worried about your father's safety or the safety of those around him? Well, I did tell my roommates what happened. And they just kind of said, you know, that's fucked up and that's about it. But so then about a week or 10 days ish later, I go to Edmonton because my sister is getting married. I start reaching out to family. I reached out to my grandfather first. And he said immediately, without hesitation, to keep it a secret and to never speak about it to protect my father's freedom and reputation. And do you think that? <laughs> then has he had these sort of violent outbursts before and the family's actively trying to, you know, keep it under wraps? Or was that the first time you personally witnessed it? They know that he's had violent outbursts. And I definitely think that everybody's covering it up. Uh, I think that they've all known. My mom has talked about it uh, throughout sort of my teenage years and adult life. So what happened then? Your family told you to keep it under wraps? And what did you do? Well, actually, I, I brought it up at one of my sister's wedding parties, my sister revealed that she had known all along uh, because one of my friends had told her and she laughed at me. And then a a while later, I texted her and I said how the way she treated me made me feel like I didn't belong in the family or something. And and she said that I was welcome to leave and never come back if I had a problem with it. Wow. And did the rest of the family give you that same treatment? Every family member that I I reached out to some way intimidated or manipulated me or gave no response at all. Yeah, just uh, just everybody contributed in some form to a culture of silence. Right. And can you tell us then the steps you took when it comes to trying to contact the police? And like when you went to the police the first time, what was your goal going there? So I contacted the police in January or February of this year because I realized that my family were not, my family members were not going to take any action. And I called the military police at Garrison Petawawa and immediately the first officer that I spoke to blurted out, what took you so long to come forward? Then I was told that I had to speak to another officer and that I would have to wait to be called back. So that officer hung up and I waited to be called back. Then the next officer called me. I gave him a serious talking to about how the first officer should not have aggressively berated me about why it took me so long to come forward. And he sort of agreed with that. But then we moved on and he said that I could not report it by phone and I would need to be interviewed in person. And that also it was out of jurisdiction because I had to report it in the location where I was. So I called the Vancouver police and they said that they were sending two officers to interview me and that they would call when they were on their way. They never called and they never came. And what were you feeling at this time? Like, did you just feel like there was no hope, like the cops were not going to do anything? I was exhausted. I was absolutely exhausted. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I felt uh, completely worn down by every family member. You know, every person that I considered to be an authority figure that I had reached out to. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about um, your interaction and like the intersectionality here that happened with the mental health system and how it was sort of weaponized against you? Yes. So after a period of being exhausted and worn down by this, I 
I was working at the Treasury Board Secretariat, and they have an emergency employee plan to get mental health treatment through Health Canada. So I was assigned a therapist through Health Canada to speak to about it, and and uh, I told my I told my boss as well, my immediate supervisor, what was going on. I told her the whole story, and so I was assigned the therapist from Health Canada. We had a telehealth appointment by phone, and the therapist no-showed to the telehealth appointment, never addressed it, and pretended it never happened. The second appointment showed up 10 minutes late. I tried to bring up the recent trauma of what had gone on the entire time, and the therapist refused to acknowledge that in favor of doing some sort of visualizing what a, a nice day feels like exercise. And then ended the appointment 10 minutes early. That is so disheartening to hear. So that was your attempt to access mental health services. And what about when you told me before we did this recording today about your family, like calling mental health services on you when you tried to report to police? Yes. So I told my family members, I was going to, I was going to accept the fact that they are never going to take action uh, if they did not do something like immediately. And I gave them a week's notice that like I was expecting them to acknowledge that something had happened. You know, they sort of started to call me crazy and did not take any action. And then they called the police on me, told them that I was suicidal or called like a wellness check. And I told the police everything about what my dad had done and uh, how my, how the family had covered it up and how, how they were continuing that culture of silence around it. And that I had told them that, and that this wellness check was clearly just a way to to try to to delegitimize me or to have me institutionalized to silence me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the police could see, I think, that that was the case immediately, and they seemed kind of, I think, very sad. You know, they said, uh, you know, after listening to my story, they they went outside and they talked amongst themselves, and they came back in and they said, "We don't believe that you're suicidal, and you seem fine." And they left, and that was it. And did they give you any advice or opportunity to then report the death threat you got, or they just left it at that? They just left it. That was it. Okay. They just said that I seemed fine and they left. Okay. So if I have this right, basically the timeline up until now is your father was a veteran, diagnosed with PTSD, has a history of violent outbursts, threatened to slit your throat. Your family has silenced you. You have had multiple failed attempts to report this to the police to either protect yourself or protect others from your father or protect him from himself. And then you've had the mental health services basically shut the door in your face. So what are you doing right now? Like, what's the state of things for you today? So as of now, so I do have a police investigation now, finally. I did go back to the police in Garrison Petawawa at the very end after many more failed attempts of contacting the police. And I was taken seriously immediately by the first officer at Garrison Petawawa and told that I could report it immediately and told that there would be an active investigation immediately and given my case number immediately. Great. And so that's pending right now? So, yeah. So I'm waiting now for the police to contact me to do an official uh, recorded interview with them. But, um, but I have already told them Uh, the entire story. Right. And what is your end goal when it comes to reporting this? My goal is that my father will have some sort of court mandated mental health treatment that he cannot fall through the cracks of. Mm -hmm. 
And for people listening to this story, can you sort of tie it together for them with the bigger message about, you know, the implications of this when it comes to, for example, what's happening in Afghanistan right now and sort of, you know, veterans falling through the cracks of the mental health system? Like, what's the message that you want to get out with your story? It's not okay for the federal government to treat military families and veterans like some sort of disposable item that they can just throw away after the war is over. They can't deny uh, treatment to veterans. They can't deny the impact that the war has on families at home. And they cannot fail to protect the public after they have failed that veteran and his family. They cannot fail to protect the public from the threat that that person has now become. Yeah, absolutely. And with the election coming up, this is obviously something I think that we want people to be mindful of when it comes to choosing who they vote for with, you know, more mandated mental health services and better support for veterans. Yeah, if if you go to the uh, immigration, refugee and citizenship website right now for the federal government, uh, there are multiple messages on there about how seriously the federal government is taking refugees uh, coming from Afghanistan. And I think that that's excellent and amazing. And I think that's what Canada is supposed to be doing. And I think that they should also be doing that for the service members that participated in that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, is there another message that we didn't have time to get to or another part of the story that we missed? Like, is there anything else you want to cover in this episode? I really think that uh, one of the lessons that I've learned from this is that whether or not you are taken seriously by the police when you're a victim of a crime seems to be a roll of the dice based on whether or not you get a police officer that takes their job professionally or if they take it personally. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really scary. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, your story is such a stark example of the barriers to accessing the services that I think most of us have the privilege of, we know that these services exist and we have the privilege of assuming that you know, when the day comes, we'll have access to it. And I feel like your story really shows people that it's not that simple. And especially, I think people need to remember that when you're trying to access these services, it is usually following a trauma. And to have to try and fight for the help is horrible. So I really think- to fight to prove that you're not just making it up or that you're not just a liar or that you're not just crazy. Imagine if you're the victim of a crime and that's the first thing that the police accuse you of is- treating you like maybe you're just making it up. Absolutely. Yeah. I think rather than investigating. Yeah. We need to get into a system where the, like a victim centered approach rather than a victim silence approach. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I hope that people, you know, pay attention to the story, especially when voting um, soon. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing and for, you know, fighting as long as you have to try and get this. I think it's, I don't know the right word for it. It's so commendable that you are trying to get your dad these services after what he did to you. And that takes a lot of empathy. So I'm glad there's people like you out there. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I just want to thank Aiden again for not only sharing his story with us, but for actually stepping forward and breaking that culture of silence. I have included in the show notes the links to Veterans Affairs website for mental health and wellness services for their counseling services, and the Legion's page, which lists phone numbers and resources for PTSD-related needs. So just to wrap up, in light of the American withdrawal in Afghanistan and our Canadian history there, I just want to end this episode with a call for us to fight for better and more accessible 
and longer-lasting mental health services for both Canadian veterans and their families and for the incoming Afghani refugees. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys after today's episode, and again, welcome to Season 2 of All Things Criminal. 